So I want to offer some reflections tonight about our orientation today of training our attention to abide with the body, in the body, through the body, to fill this arena with bright attention. How did it go? I'm going to hazard a guess that for most people in this room, it was very, very challenging at times. And if you are such a person, you are not alone. We cultivate this. We don't know how to perfectly bring it about as we start practicing on a retreat. Um, and we will say a lot more. So I want to start with the idea that I brought in this morning about a contemplative attention, the kind of attention that's going to let you be t know the liberation of a Buddha, know the awakening of a Buddha. That kind of attention is voluntary. It's not involuntary, meaning it's not compelled just to go down the tracks it normally goes down. And attention that is compelled is not free. That's just how it is, it seems, right? To feel compelled to pick up everything consciousness presents, like here's a thought, oh God, okay, gotta do something with that one. Here's a sensation, oh blimey, have to figure that out. Here's a self-image, oh my God, is it real about me? Is it not real about me? To feel compelled to do you know, to sort of be bothered and have to do something by what consciousness presents um, is fraught, isn't it? It's, at best, it's doesn't bring peace, and at worst, it's hell. Involuntary attention, where it's not free and it's compelled, it has patterns. We have patterns, and what we will, what you will see here, what you can study here, is the kinds of things your attention tends to do, because it's not exactly the same as everybody else's. We, there are kind of universal patterns, and there are particular shapes our attention takes. So you will see those this week, and with this focus on the body, this is a really, really, really good place to work with this. So attention in the body has patterns, um, unique in a sense to us, shapes that our body takes that are as distinctive as a signature, as our signature or our fingerprint, let's say. And I bet you know this, everyone here who has good sight, you know that Somebody you haven't seen for ages, you can't quite see who it is, but they're at the end of the street, and you can see by the way they walk, by the way their body moves. Got it? It's, it's Bob. I know that. Or oh, if you can't remember his name, it's like it's so distinctive. No one else walks quite like that, with that shape, with that tilt there, that way, that swagger that way, that however it looks, right? It's distinctive. And why is this important? 
Because when we're sitting, we get to see that when we inhabit those shapes, not just of our walking, but of our sitting, without training our attention, they feel like me. Right, don't they? Let's say you're here after lunch and you feel a little bit collapsed and you're a bit kind of tired and it's like scratching your head. What am I supposed to be doing here? And a little sort of little collapse in the chest, heads tilting to the right. Oh, I, kn- I knew I couldn't do meditation. Yeah, maybe I should have gone on that Sufi dancing course. <laughs> that would have been much better. And there we are in a shape that feels real. It feels like me doesn't feel great and we're kind of in it there's a shape and the body will be taking a shape that corresponds to what the mind is doing and as meditators we can sense that shape see that shape and actually without yanking ourselves around we can widen open the attention sit up straighter not judge that shape but not take that little vortex that parking spot, remember that image I gave, like you park your car in a particular shape and then you're there for 30 minutes spinning that story and at some point there's a moment of mindfulness. You go, oh, that's right, I'm at Gaia House. I'm supposed to, what is it I'm supposed to do? Uh, oh yeah, whole body, okay. Can I widen my attention? I don't want to widen my attention, I want to be here, right? So we can start to see these shapes of the body that reflect our mind will show up and it's good that they show up because we can start to see them. We can start to see these are usually places where I park and think it's me, it feels like me. And we can start to have some choice actually, that without judging that, we can widen, we can train the attention to widen Let the hands lead, the attention will follow to start to fill this arena with that attention that gets trapped, that gets hijacked, that gets um, captured, we could say, into those shapes. So I want to do a little experiment with you, invite you to do an experiment. Attention is the key here. Um, And it gets bonded to things. Bonded is like glued. It gets stuck in these bodily shapes, in mental shapes. And if you doubt this, think if you have ever been, had your attention bonded to your cell phone. It's a very easy place for our attention to bond. Attention sometimes, when it's not at home, it's kind of searching something to, something to bond to, something to glue to, something to stick to, something to confirm itself. And I notice sometimes I wake up from a nap these days. Didn't happen 10 years ago. I, I don't know when I got a mobile phone, but quite late in the modern story, I think. I woke up from a nap the other day and my phone was there acting as the clock. And I woke up and I saw my attention just kind of in that waking up moment when you haven't quite landed and you haven't quite got your orientation and and poof, 
pick it up. Oh, there's some colors on the screen that say something about some news item that's coming in this nice red and yellow and blue color, which I have since found out, which some of you probably know. Um, that they're very particular kinds of ways they attract our attention. Some phones, apparently, you can put on grey, so you're not so compelled. But anyway, my attention was compelled, and there I am, with this new pattern, this new shape, where my attention has not only withdrawn itself from the good earth, from an embeddedness in this place, in this time. It has withdrawn itself from my body and starts to occupy this little region somewhere near my eyes and the f probably part of my frontal cortex here and my finger. And my cosmos has become very quickly this article about Boris Johnson <laughs> and my eyes. You know, it happens in a flash, right? in a flash, so fast it can move these days, because things can move so fast. And it's like, hold on, wait a sec, what's going on here? How soon is it that we have, you have the training to go, hey, wait a sec, what am I doing with my attention right now? Where am I offering it? Is this where I want to offer it? Do I have a voluntary, am I voluntary in where I'm offering it, or has it been captured? Has it been seized by, in this case, the, the clever news folks who know how to seize my attention? Am I voluntary in that relationship with that or not? And often, without training, it's not. And we can then end up watching too many of these items with the finger, feeling a bit hungover, feeling unsatisfied, unfed, do you know that feeling? It's not, it's not nourished, you're not um, filled out as a human being, often feeling kind of undernourished or hungover at the end. If you're not, and it's completely voluntary, good. And this is not an anti-device talk, not at all. It absolutely not. Underlined. So the experiment I'd li like to do together is to consider um, some of the habits of attention that are quite standard for modern people and just to get you experimenting with those together. So this comes from an experiment with some dancers in, in France and the, they took them to the University of Paris because they were interested in measuring all kinds of bodily um, responses to different ways, the different things they did with their attention, right? So, please come to standing, if you wish. <coughs> Find a bit of carpet so that you've got steady, steady place for your feet. And just let the knees be loose a little bit. So they put these dancers on some feet sensors so they could sense what was happening in their feet. And first they asked the uh, dancers, I'm going to ask you to do this, um, we're going to use your capacity to let attention be super focused. And so choose something in your visual field, um, something up here, something specific, pinpointed, maybe the top of the Buddha's top knot or I don't know the microphone on my mouth, whatever, something very specific. 
and let your gaze of your eyes focus right in on that thing. Like really give it your full attention, focus right in. Absolute maximum focal gazing, right? And then relax, okay. And we're gonna do it once more. I'm gonna ask you to notice what you notice in certain domains. So go for it, let that focal gaze really give it your all, give your attention utterly to that thing, okay? And notice what's happening with your breath right now. Notice what's happening with your attention in your feet right now. Don't give up the focal gaze. Notice what's happening with your guts, if you can, if you have that kind of sensitivity. And relax. Okay. Some of you might have done this before. Any reports, anything you noticed in the focal gazing with breath, with guts, with feet, anybody? What did you see? Um, Omid. Uh, everything around gets very blurry. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Wow, super. Thank you. Very interesting. Thank you. Super. Um, Cleona. Can you hear her? Okay. Um, I, is it all right if I give you the mic, Cleona? Go f that my jaw Go for was tight to start with, and um, then and it was when you mentioned the breath and it still wasn't breathing, and then this, the second or third time I did it, I just felt everything was really tense. That everything was kind of like tight. Thank you. Everything was tight. Could you hear that more or less at the back? So Cleona reported that when she did it, she noticed first her jaw kind of locked or got tighter. Why is she doing that? Her jaw got tighter. Everything got tense. And I wasn't breathing. Okay, so very different reports, interestingly enough. Anything else anyone notice with that exercise? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Great, thank you. So breath was shallow and fast. Anything else? Yeah. Thank you. So what's your name? Hmm? Becky. Becky reported her feet a little bit gripping on the ground. And while her breath was kind of long and deep, it was very narrow and not wide and easy. Yeah, thank you. Anything else want to be named? Rosie. My eyeballs ached. <laughs> thank you. Anyone notice their eyeballs ache? Anybody who's been meditating a long time ever noticed your eyeballs ache 
in meditation. Not if you've ever noticed that in meditation. Yeah, sometimes this ocular of the eyes, that kind of way of looking can become too dominant for us and we end up doing the same thing in meditation as we're doing here. Yeah, thank you. Okay, so what they notice, and I'm really interested in your experience, um, good for you <laughs> to be able to have a focal gaze and not lose all the ground and everything else. Typically what they found was more of what the m uh, majority report was, that weight came away from the feet of the dancers, the guts tightened, uh, the breath got more narrow, and they didn't have the eyeball ache category, but I would imagine that might have been in there if they did. Um, so there's nothing wrong with focusing our attention as we explored this morning. Sometimes it's important to have something at the center, right? But it's whether our attention narrows right into it, which is what a lot of um, modern people have as very well trained um, and have lost touch more of us at times with what they call field attention, which is where the gaze widens and opens. So feel your feet. Let the breath be easy. You are the dancers being known. And without focusing, let imagine your skull and your whole body actually can be an instrument for knowing and seeing. It can take in the whole field around you. Field of the other people, field of the sound, the field of the ground, it's a wider gaze. It, it holds the wider view of how things are hanging together. And notice if your eyes start to have the tendency to want to zero in know which is what we can do as animals when we're going for the we're going for the other animal for whatever we want them for right that's that kind of honing in widen that out let the skull be wide imagine it's not just your eyes that can know but your whole intelligent organism that knowing doesn't just belong to the head. And notice what happens with your feet and the weight in your feet. And if your attention narrows again, open it back up again, open it wide again. It will, That's, that will be the habit for most of us. Widen it open. And as you widen it open, check what happens with the breathing. Sense your guts, if you can, the tightening, the loosening, the presence there or absence there. Check your eyeballs. <laughs> and any comments, anyone? Mm -hmm. um, K 
Kath said that before she felt like she was bolted to the ground in this way her and her feet were spread evenly. Like you got more intelligence there. Yeah. Anything else? Like you got more gravity weight, yeah. Yeah, thank you. The focal gaze, when it's restricting and narrowing, it's like we come up and out a little bit. Anything else? Yeah. Thank you. I found it really difficult. I come, keep coming back to focusing on individual points. Yeah. Great. I'm really glad you're seeing that and you won't be alone. That's where many of us will find our default setting is, right, into that kind of gaze. And that's why today the emphasis on seeing when we're doing that and widening, right, we'll, we'll keep going with that. You won't be stuck there forever. Yeah, thank you. So that's m more or less equivalent to what I read in the research, that there's more gravity. We didn't talk about the guts, but the guts um, have a more room often in that wider gaze. Of course, these aren't absolute for everyone at every time because it depends. And what I'm guessing, Omid, is that you were able to focus in without losing your surround. You practice that. Okay, very good. All right. So he has a practice of knowing how to let something be foreground without actually losing the wider field. And the conclusion of this report was, um, maybe you can even guess it as modern people trained in, in the typical ways that we're trained. Um, we overuse, utilize this focal gazing. Um, and it's not good for our health to overuse it. It tends to come compulsively and with a loss of ground and embeddedness, right? Earth below, body, breath, other people. We lose our gravity, right? We gain our gravity back. We might be bolted to the floor this way, but we, we also lose our resilience that way, right? We lose our resilience that way. We can't p bounce back. We get knocked and then we're done. Anyone who trains in a sport that needs that will know that. Okay, so hopefully you can see the application to your sitting practice here, practicing this range of what we do with our attention, right? We don't want to be locked into any one mode. Attention, as the Buddha speaks about it, can become malleable, beautiful, wieldy, flexible, um, and lead onward toward the goal. Okay, so that's what we're doing. So please come to sit. So with regard to the body and our practice,
one of the things most of us will be doing is healing from the legacy, one of the legacies of our modern mind, um, which has had many gains, and we'll speak more about that, but one of the legacies that brings a lot of loss, and there are also many, is that domination by the one who sees, right? This ocular center, the capacity to see. If we look in our uh, Western history, modern history, it was this gift to abstract, to get a distance on something, to look at it from a distance, right? It's the beginnings of the scientific revolution, the revolution in art, the revolution in medicine. We can start standing back and seeing matter in a way that was never seen before. And in that distancing, that focal gazing, we can look into it and start to discover what you can do with that stuff if you mix it around and do that with it and make one of these and and such has been many of our advances in medicine and science and of which we are probably all beneficiaries and such also are the losses because to approach a body and meditatively also if we approach our body with that same distancing gaze the body will not yield their secrets of Dhamma to us. The body is not amenable. It will be in terms of anatomy and physiology and those results that we can get from that. But in terms of contemplative depth and awakening, the body will not yield to a distant observer's gaze. We will keep feeling stuck like, oh God, I've got this pain. Why isn't it opening? How do I be with it? Oh, oh, my body's a drag. If only my body wasn't like this, I'd be able to meditate. Or if I had a different body. Or maybe it'd be better if I was just out of the body. Aren't there some practices where you can just leave the body? Body, God, it's such a drag. Or, God, if I could just get in there and just kind of penetrate it a bit more, then I would understand the Dharma. No, there's something about that gaze that will forever leave us lonely. At best, that gaze is distancing. At worst, it's voyeuristic, it's objectifying. So we practice seeing it. We will all have it. We will all have that tendency to some degree. It's not anybody's fault, not at all. It has many benefits. But if we're interested in where the path can go, we want to see when our attention keeps banging in the same direction of trying to see and know through this ocular privileging, right? If we approach the body as I approach my iPhone, 
want some quick results here, right? I want to, I want to be grabbed. I want my attention to be grabbed, to be entertained, to yield results, to tell me the story, to tell me the answer. Come on. And if I'm doing that with my body, um, it won't work. It won't work. If I approach my body with humility, and humility here is a kind of bowing that there are things I don't know about you. And all the ways I have looked upon you so far, some of them have been kind and some of them have not. Some of them have overlooked you. Some of them have gazed upon you like you're supposed to be a different body. I'm sorry for that. If I can be patient and humble and learn how the language of the body is not like the language of the iPhone or my thoughts even. It's not so sharp and chiseled. It doesn't yield fast and quick results like I want. And I learn my way of attending to the body learns some humility. It learns to be in partnership with the body, not treating her like a lump of meat that I can drag around to um, do my bidding. Uh, there was this one quote I found. It's a lovely book I read um, called Intelligence in the Flesh, Why Your Mind Needs Your Body More Than It Thinks, something like that. And the author is talking. In fact, the author was actually on retreat with me in May. It was very exciting. I hadn't read many books last year, and that was one of them. And this thought, he said, long after Descartes, so if you know the history, that splitting of the mind and body there, long after Descartes left us with a theory of mind that is still so very influential. Clever people can l uh, look upon their bodies merely as irritatingly fallible forms of transport, a way of getting their minds to a meeting, the maintenance of which takes up valuable time and distracts us from the much more important business of having opinions, uh, winning arguments, and making decisions. Uh, to change, we're not just change, um, to change this, we're not just changing theories, right? Because we could just say now, okay, your body is important, it's sacred, it's whatever, we could say that, but it won't be just about changing the theory. We vote with our attention, what our attention does and where it goes and how it fills out this space. That's how we vote. That's how our worldviews alter and change. That's how awakening opens, by what we do with our attention. This is from a, a modern philosopher. He said, if the body had been easier to understand, nobody would have thought that we had a mind. If the body had been e easier to understand, nobody would have thought that we had a mind. Right? M that whole mind-body duality is just a particular story in history at a particular time. It's not an absolute truth. It's a famous quote from the Buddha. In, through, and with this fathom-long body, the entire Dhamma can be revealed. Fathom that measure of depth in the ocean. 
in through with this fathom long body, the whole of the Dhamma can be revealed. So if we're not um, If we come into respectful partnership with the body, with our attention, we can start to see what the Buddha called, which was one of the the key to freedom actually, to understand what he called dependent origination. And put very simply here, with regard to the body, my way of looking at the body, the way I attend and approach the body, and the body I come to know, they are mutually dependent on each other. The way I attend to the body and the body I come to know co-arise. There is no body separate from my way of attending. There is no way of attending separate from the body. Sometimes when there's pain and discomfort in meditation or even when we hear the instruction to know body as body, most many of us, and I include myself, think, oh, I just have to feel those sensations or come closer to the breath. And the object of the body becomes the all-important thing and we forget that my way of attending and the body I come to know are mutually dependent. This is radical, this is healing for us. It's not just the depth of the teaching of the Buddha. It's radically healing. Many of us will have labored under either self-perceptions or cultural perceptions that our body wasn't the right body in whatever way, shape or form. And the body we come to know in practice is not the body of our ideas about body or the self-images or other people's images of our body. The body that we come to know is the body that we know when we descend. For most of us, it's a journey of descending. When we descend into this fathom-long, extraordinary instrument and our attention is in partnership and curiosity and play and respect, to begin by filling out this whole arena with bright attention for the healing of it, for the beauty in it, for the restfulness, for the real food. It's real food as we come here. That one of the um, gifts of a practice of cultivating the whole body attention is that as we practice it, and you will see this if you haven't yet, you will see it at some point on this retreat. It's nourishing. It feeds our soul in a way that me reading the news compulsively does not. Real nourishment. And that's one of the ways it's easier to let go of the compulsion to have things or people or even have experiences. There's something nourishing about this abiding here and now. 
right? Not necessarily in the beginning, but we will get there. One uh, recent commentator on the global crises that probably everyone here in this room sees or feels or is trying not to see or feel or is responding in some way. The global crises of unprecedented inequality like we've never seen, of wars over resources, of the loss of habitat and viable home, viable abiding for many animals and for increasing number of human beings due to our own actions, our unstoppable addictions to fossil fuels and greenhouse gases. He describes this as a crisis of disembodiment. That our attention is not separate from that crisis. The crisis of loss of embodiment, loss of embeddedness through the earth, with the earth, in the earth, in place. The confused relationship with matter, materiality, knowing perhaps some of us saying, yes, it is important and I must treat it well, but voting with our attention. He calls it a crisis of disembodiment. So our work here, our in the moment we've been lost for 10 minutes and we remember it's like, oh, what am I doing? That's right. Can I widen the gaze? Can I let the breath fill this whole arena? Even if sometimes it feels like a drag, sometimes there's pain in the body, sometimes my mind's really crazy and all over the place and I can't be bothered. Sometimes by sensing in and breathing up with the body, it will reveal and it will. It will show up the places where I'm stuck. It will show up the places of resistance in the body, the hardening maybe in my heart, the tightening in my belly. I might feel discomfort, I will, along the way. Pain is not um, an enemy of awakening. I will feel those places as this arena fills out. Right? A little bit like, I think of it, you know, like a balloon, when you blow it up, and probably did this as a kid, maybe you do it if you've got kids, and then you hold it, but you don't tie the knot, or you do tie the knot, and then sometimes later you manage to untie the knot, which is quite an art, and you let all the air out. And then that little flat orange thing gets stuck in certain places, so when you blow the air back in, it, it kind of, it doesn't blow up, blow up like it did the first time. Right, there's these sort of pockets that are kind of, they're not amenable. They've gotten a bit gummed down. Sometimes it's a little bit like that. We have been used to occupying our abiding in the ways that were our survival style. 
So there's no judgment. We manage to get through by maybe collapsing a little bit in the chest, maybe puffing out in the shoulders, maybe tilting a little bit, maybe rising off the earth a little bit. We will see those, we will feel those. They can be healed along the way with this filling out. Maybe when we practice, we can see that this restoring of our attention through the body, like some of you may actually find it quite easy to sit, surprising to the rest of us. Maybe some of you find it quite easy to sit and sense your body. The task then is to linger and go further. Can we widen into the pockets Breathe through the places, the stuck balloon parts that don't want to yield, like, no, 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 not there. They will show up more. When I first began practicing, it was really, really hard for me to come any actually anywhere near my body. I think I could feel my feet on the ground when I took a step in walking meditation, but I had no sense of the whole body arena, not at all, for all kinds of various reasons. And I would hear the, 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 the teaching and I would intend to be with my body, but I would sort of sense a little bit my body and then ping, my attention would just kind of go back into my head thinking about something or, and I would try and drag my attention around and breathe with the body. Wherever we are today in that uh, spectrum, we could say. It's possible. It's all possible, actually. Attention is malleable. It's not who we are. It's workable. It can become beautiful. It can be an, a trained attention that is not trying to have experiences but is interested in the understanding and the realization that unbinds the grip and the clinging of that separating, that alienating, that pulling ourselves up and away from the ground, the pulling of ourselves away from each other. So think of that this as a journey. This instruction to widen your attention when it narrows and shrinks. This is a journey in the tradition that is called the journey of samatha, of calm abiding, of the unification of the whole arena. And it goes from, and this is, I'm going to say it linear, but in any one moment, it's not like we've passed number one and then we never go back. It's not only linear, right? It starts with restoring our attention to the body, right? It goes off, you're in your mind, you're in your thoughts, you're wondering what's for lunch, you've had enough of being here, you think you're great, you think you're terrible, you think I'm great, you think I'm terrible. Whatever the mind does, right? Coming back, restoring attention to the body, there again and again and again 
restoring attention and widening to learn how to fill this arena with breath, with bright attention. So restoring. Then we may notice that there's a soothing quality that comes. It's what psychologists might call um, a kind of regulating our nervous system. Many of us have had nervous have nervous systems that are either jittery or have we have some trauma perhaps, or um, keeps flying out. That capacity of restoring attention to the body, while on the one hand it might reveal some of those places, when we don't shrink around them, but widen and ground and settle, we can soothe the flickering, agitated, helpless, distressed, terrified, lost. That flickering, that darting, soothed, calmed like regulated, like restored, like there's arms around us, bigger than us. It's like, oh, phew. So restoring, soothing, steadying. It steadies the mind. As we come to the body, our mind slows down. When we're occupied up here, it's all quite fast, the mind, and we just think the mind is fast. As we come deeper into the body and settle and steady, this can slow down. This will slow down. We can see it more clearly. Do not underestimate this incredible gift of the body. One of my teachers said to me, some years ago I was having a really, really difficult time and it was really difficult for me to be with the body, my body. And I, I, I was really desperate some time ago. And I said to my teacher, I can't stand it anymore. In that way, uh, I don't know if ever of you have any, ever felt that point where I don't want a body, I don't want to be here, it's too hard. And I said, you know, I'm not sure how serious I was, but it was like, ugh, I don't want a body. And he said, do you know, the path is seven to nine times more difficult without a body. <laughs> I was like, huh? <laughs> Where did you get that from? What sort of statistics are you looking at? Right? But it really made me think, it's like, yes, actually, God bless this possibility. Imagine having a mind with no body, because sometimes you feel like that, right? And it's going crazy. And it picks up everything that consciousness presents, and then it's down all these rabbit holes, sniffing out every idea or thought or self-image or reflecting something back. It's like, yes, this body is the place where that mediates all that fast, flickering, difficult emotion and, and, and um, perplexed or crazy thinking. It's like, ah, oh, slows it down, steadies the mind. Thank God for the body. Restoring, soothing, steadying, nourishing. Some of you will know this either from previous experience or um, from today, perhaps. There's real food, soul food, heart food. It's like, oh, yeah, I want more of that. 
right? And then, of course, we can get into grasping, but there's something wholesome about that kind of nourishment. Soothes us and makes us less, uh, makes our craving less of a problem. Because there's something so good here. Not all the time, it doesn't mean there's no pain in the body, but there is nourishment here that's I was going to say even better than that lasagna at lunchtime. <laughs> suffusing. It's a really nice word in English. It's like this whole body can be suffused, like filled out. Like if you put some ink in a glass of water and that blue ink goes whoosh all the way through the whole glass of water. It's like this whole body and the space around the body can be suffused with bright attention. And that's very healing. And the next word then I would say harmonizing. It's like it's in harmony. Our body, our mind, our heart, our arena, our sense of self and the world is kind of humming as a kind of humming, which some of us might have known after some uh, exertion or exercise or doing something extreme or, you know, sometimes I think why those activities can be um, important for people because there's something about that harmonization we know is good, but we can know that and cultivate that um, in practice. So I'm just going to skip some of this. Um, Let's see what's important before ending. What I think is important before ending. I don't know. Hopefully some of it will have resonance for you. Maybe just sense your body right now. Because even our listening, you know, our listening can become very uh, tight. You know, we listen with that same kind of gaze, so to speak. Um, What would it be right now to listen as if the whole instrument of your body is the intelligent one who knows, who hears, who senses? It's not just some idea that what knows is located in the head center. Imagine or sense that you're hearing the teaching, not just from your ears, but those ears, and I believe they have pathways, as all the senses do, right through to the center of your body, to the heart. And that you could listen from this center of your whole body and abide at home. You don't have to do anything about my words. You don't have to like them or dislike them. I mean, you can. But there's something abiding that is hearing, 
that is breathing, that doesn't go anywhere. With your weight given back to the ground, you can be upright. Your attention can fill the whole arena of your body right through to your bones. Imagine right through your cells, your blood, and all the spaces in between your organs. Imagine filled with bright attention, restoring that gift of attention that gets captured by what calls the loudest, by what is most familiar. But let your spiritual instinct, your nose, <laughs> your nose that there's more possible for you. Let that instinct sniff, feel, touch. Open this arena of listening. Breathing out. Imagining you're being breathed up from below. You as an outcrop. An outcropping of the ground. And if it's helpful, as one of my students let me know, for her it was very hard to feel safe in her body. She would go up onto Dartmoor there, and she wasn't an outdoors kind of person originally. And one day in her um, fraughtness, she sat down on the ground and a black stallion came and stood beside her. For 20 minutes, he rested his face near to her and then he nudged her into the herd and took her to the white mare. And she sat down and she said, for the first time, she saw this herd, the black stallion left, she saw the herd, had her in mind. That's how herds work. They'd started to include her, and they had her in mind. She sat down, and she said, for the first time, something in her body went, So whatever for you is a being, a being with a body and eyes, or a being without a body and eyes, the being of the earth, of the trees, the horses, or if there's a person or someone in your life or a figure whose gaze you trust, who 
who does not look upon you as an object, as something to fix or solve or do something about or gain from, in whose company your defenses relax, who you let in, who gets in, because they see that there is much to you. They see your dimensionality. Yes, they see your pain. And they see so much more. Dimensions and levels to this extraordinary one called you. And in their company, you breathe out. You give your weight back to the earth. You get a taste of abiding and your instinct sees that the path is opening for you. So you might reflect tonight a little bit if there are, there is such a one This was not easy for me also in the beginning, which it may not be for some of, maybe for some of you difficult. But be open to that possibility. In whose presence, human or more than human, alive or not alive, Can you breathe out? Can you rest? Can you recognize that you are seen?